Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35 through verse 40. Stand with me if you're able to, and uh, we'll read uh, these verses here. The Bible says, Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better things for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Uh, last week we finished up a Bible study on faith's examples, its power on display. This evening we turn our attention to our final installment in the faith examples messages and notice it's persecution on demand. It's persecution on demand. Let's pray this evening together. Lord, thank you for allowing us to gather. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we consider these truths this evening. May we, um, may we be challenged. And Lord, may we decide uh, even this evening that uh, no matter what happens, we're not going to back down from our faith. Lord, that we're going to stand strong in what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Be patient with us uh, in the sound booth, but the Tom is helping us out. This is his first time flying solo, and so uh, be gracious and, and, and with all that. Brother Tom, if you could back the slideshow up one slide to the title slide, that would be great. Thank you. Uh, notice uh, here, or rather, uh, we have taken 17 Wednesday evenings in Hebrews chapter 11 to look with great detail at faith's examples. We started with Abel. And uh, last week we finished up through women having received their dead brought to life again. We looked at Elijah and Elisha going in and raising uh, the, the, the dead, the sons of the women uh, there in those stories. We've seen some incredible things that faith has accomplished. There is one false narrative that the reader can be left with uh, that the author of Hebrews wants to make sure and clarify. And here is, the, here is what the author wants to make sure that is clarified. Faith doesn't always bring about earthly deliverance. Just because I have faith does not mean that God is necessarily going to do some great sensational thing to bail me out of a hardship. Sometimes we have faith in God, and God still allows the evil in our life to take place. Let me say that again. Sometimes we have great faith in God, and God still allows the evil to take place in our lives. Let me ask you a series of questions here. And uh, obviously these answers are rhetorical. Did Abel have faith in God? Did Stephen have faith in God when the Pharisees stoned him? Did Andrew have faith in God 
before he was crucified on an X-shaped cross? Did Paul have faith in God before he was beheaded? Every single time the answer is yes, but you notice that their faith did not stave off the beheading. The faith did not keep Stephen from being stoned. The faith did not keep Andrew from being crucified. Uh, The faith did not keep uh, Cain from killing Abel. The author is making it crystal clear that faith in God does not necessarily negate or do away with persecution. You can have faith in God, and God may choose to deliver you from the lion's mouth or the fiery furnace, but He might not. You can have faith in God, and it may be that He heals you from leprosy. It may be that He gives sight to the blind, but He may choose not to. You may have faith in God, and God may choose to take away your cancer. God may choose to heal that broken relationship. But you can have faith all the same, and He may choose not to heal the cancer. He may choose not to heal the broken relationship. The author is making it clear here at the end of the chapter that faith is not necessarily a shield of protection against evil. Faith is trusting that God, please hear this, this is the this is the foundation of the sermon right here. Please hear what I'm about to say. Faith is trusting that God will only allow evil to happen to me if he feels that it is what is best for me. God may let evil happen to me, but only if he believes it's for my own good. I think the most natural example in the Bible is the story of Job, is it not? Uh, Was Job a man of faith when all the persecution came to him? Yes. Job was a man of great faith when the persecution came to him. Job's faith did not keep the persecution from coming. Job was a great man of faith and persecution came anyway. You know why? Because God knew that if He let Satan attack Job, that it would only in the end make Job better. Here's a hard truth that many American Christians do not like to hear. Ready? We are called to be persecuted. We are called to suffer. We are not called to be comfortable, and we are not called to be accepted by the culture at large. We are called we are called rather to be persecuted, and we are called to suffer. We are called to suffer. I'm going to show you that this evening. You can suffer with your faith and please God, or you can suffer in your flesh and let God down. Boy, we have a rich heritage of suffering. We have a rich heritage of Christian brethren, of believers who lived before us, who suffered. And the author of Hebrews takes the time to remind us of that. Let's look at three thoughts as we attempt to finish uh, Hebrews chapter 11 this evening. I hope you got a prayer bulletin on the way in, and I hope you'll fill out the outline as we go along here. Notice, number one, the condition of the world. The condition of the world. 
Uh, look with me at Hebrews chapter number 11 and look at verse number 35. Brother Tom, you can advance to the next slide there. Hebrews chapter 11 and look at verse number 35. The Bible says, Women received their dead, raised to life again. And we looked at that last week. Let's, let's move on to the next part here. Others were tortured. Well, who did the torturing? The world did the torturing, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Look at verse 36. And others had trial of cruel mockings. These are good, godly believers who had their faith in God, and they had to suffer cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonments. Boy, the world took those who believed in God, and they tortured them. They imprisoned them. They locked them up in shackles. Uh, They isolated them. Uh, They held trials of cruel mockings against them. Notice the condition of the world. Notice first letter A, it's prince. It's prince. Look with me at, uh, turning your Bibles, if you would, over to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 2. If you would turn over there in your Bibles with me, and we see here that the reason why the world is so wicked is because Satan is in charge. He is the prince and power of the air. Look here at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. It says, Where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. I'm amazed uh, when Christians are so despondent and so amazed that the world has become so wicked. Why would you be surprised at that? Why would that surprise you? You know, as I, I watch as different uh, 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 different organizations or homes or institutions or governments are ran by different leaders. And you know what? You leave a leader in place long enough, that group of people that he is leading eventually is going to follow that leader in the direction that that leader is taking it. In fact, by very definition of being a leader, if you are leading people, you are going somewhere. And who is the leader of the lost world? It is the prince and power of the air. It is the devil. Are you surprised when the devil leads the general population at large to behave in a way that's wicked? I'm not. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that I turn on the news that's run by lost, wicked men. And you know what I hear? I hear a push toward immorality. I see the destruction of the nuclear home that's happening before our very eyes. I I, I hear about sitcoms. I don't watch them, but I hear about sitcoms and shows that come on channels like HBO and Cinemax and Showtime and uh, shows that come on CBS and NBC and ABC and Fox. And what are they doing? They're leading people to live in a way that would make them a child of disobedience. Why? Because there is a prince, a leader of this earth who is leading people toward uh, uh, that which is anti-God. Letter A, it's prince, the condition of the world. Notice letter B, it's pressure. It's pressure. What is the pressure being put on humanity? Turn over to Isaiah chapter 5. And verse number 20. It's a verse that if you've gone to church any length of time, you've heard before. You might even have memorized or at the very least be very familiar with. We see that Satan's system is the opposite of God's system. Boy, what God calls good, Satan calls evil. 
Isaiah chapter 5 and verse number 20. Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Does that not describe the world today? You tell your neighbor that you go to church three times a week, and they look at you like you've lost your mind. But you tell your neighbor, someone else, your, your other neighbor could talk about having gone to a gentleman's club or having uh, blown their money on you know, a, a weekend in Sin City in Las Vegas, and that's, that's good. That's good, but going to church is evil. You, you, you give to your charity at your local church, and you, you, you give toward the gospel, and boy, your co-workers find how much money you give to the church, and they think you've lost your mind. They label that as evil. Oh, but they have no problem spending money on that storage unit with their material goods that are just collecting dust. And, and that is labeled good. We live in a world where if you, um, uh, if you wait until you're married to give up your virginity, uh, that's, that's weird and that's strange and uh, nobody does that anymore. And maybe you, maybe you, you're, you're, you're funny. Maybe there's something strange about you, but somehow living together before you're married or even declaring yourself to be somewhere on that LGBT spectrum, well, that's good. That's good. And uh, you want to have seven children today? You want to have ten children today? And you want to walk through the store with those seven and ten children? Everybody looks at you like you've lost your mind. Uh, and and we, maybe we need to send child protective services to your house because why are you having so many children? And that's just weird. And nobody does that anymore. But you want to go to the abortion clinic and have your baby killed? And well, that's good. That's good. In fact, if you want to stand up against abortion, then you are told that you're being hateful because you're standing up against a woman's reproductive rights. You see the pressure in this world? You see the pressure is against God and for Satan? Is it any wonder the prince and power of the air is pressuring people in this world to accept evil as good and good as evil? Letter C, we see the condition of the the world. We see its persecutions. Its persecutions. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, the Bible says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall, not might, shall suffer persecution. Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If I am really living like Christ then I ought to be persecuted on some level. Amen? By the way, the further that this world gets from being a... the further this country gets from being a Christian nation, the more you ought to suffer. Right? You've heard... Uh, if you've gone to church in league time, you've heard all kinds of preachers talk about how you have the world here and you have the church here. And the church just seems to stay right behind the world. Right? How many of you have heard that illustration before? Right? You've heard that illustration that here you have 
the church and or the world rather and the church and the the, the world uh, the church rather just continues to be more and more carnal but they're not looking at Christ they're looking at the world and you know what if I'm staying here next to the Lord Jesus Christ and the world continues to move that way they ought to think less and less and less of me they ought to think that I'm more and more and more fanatical and the more I'm like Christ and the less they are like Christ the more they will persecute me for being like Christ. You know, I'm 36 years old. I'm a lot younger uh, than uh, some of you in the room in here this evening. And uh, But I'll say this, in my 36 years of life, I have watched before my very eyes America go from being able to make the claim of being a Christian nation. I don't think America can make that claim anymore. I don't think America can make that claim anymore. When uh, this country kills as many babies in the womb and has institutionalized that process, and I'm not throwing stones at any mother who's gone and gotten an abortion. That's not the purpose of this tonight. I'm talking about the system at large. When we stand up to protect murder, when we belittle and make fun of and limit churches, do you know that during this COVID coronavirus pandemic, there are governments that are still stepping on the toes of churches and not letting them open? What about that First Amendment right that uh, government shall make no law, no law? They're not supposed to be able to step on the feet, but, but you can go out and protest. But you can go to Walmart, but you can go to Home Depot. I I wish I could get Christians to be passionate about church the way that protesters are about their cause. We wouldn't even be able to put every, we wouldn't be able to hold everyone in this room. You know, it should be no wonder that Christians are persecuted. Here's what I'm trying to get at before we move on to the next point of the sermon this evening. Instead of looking to avoid persecution, if you are not being persecuted for your faith today, That ought to be a moment where you stop and say, Lord, what's wrong with my faith? Why am I not being persecuted? What what am I not doing right? Now look, I'm not saying you ought to go out of your way to get persecuted. I'm not saying you ought to go be rude to someone so that they'll persecute you. But if you're really walking by the Word of God and you're doing it the right way, the world will hate you because you're like Christ. I do believe there's a day coming where persecution for true Christians will become the mainstream in America, and I do not believe that day is very far off. Boy, I wish every Christian in America would hear this. Before the church, in the near future, we have three options. There's revival. There's the rapture, or there's ruin. Either Christians have to get serious about their faith. And we've got to lead America into a revival. Or churches we know it won't be around much longer. I am not trying to stand up here and be a doomsdayer. I'm trying to stand up here and give all of us a reality check. And to be totally frank, as the pastor of White Oak Baptist Church, boy, I spend spend my life doing everything I can to get Christians to be serious about church and about God. 
I'm not angry at anybody tonight. I'm not frustrated at anybody tonight. But on my knees, with tears running down my cheeks, I have said to God, what is it going to take for the people of this church to wake up and get serious about their faith? And I am left with this conclusion. For many folks, the only thing that will work is persecution. Persecution purges the church. It has every time it's ever come to a church. It takes the people who are phonies and fakes and and playing a game with God, and it gets them to leave. And it gets those who are serious about God to be more serious about God. We're looking at our world getting darker and darker. And Christian, your light, as the world gets darker, ought to get brighter and brighter. Number two, we see the calling of the Christian. The calling of the Christian. Okay, pastor, what exactly is it that I'm supposed to do? Letter A, notice, a faith that stands. A faith that stands. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11. And look at verse number 35. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 35. Again, I want to emphasize, I'm not angry at anybody this evening. I'm not upset with anyone. If if, uh, you're at home watching online and you haven't been back to church yet, I'm not upset with you. I'm not angry at you. I respect uh, your decision to be careful and measured uh, with with the virus. I do, I do, I do. Uh, I, I respect that. But are you being true to your faith? Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Are you walking with God? Are you walking by fear? Or are you walking by faith? Is your faith uh, uh, growing? Or is it withering on the vine? We need to be Christians that take a stand. Look at verse number 35. When we receive their uh, dead, raised to life again. Look here. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Notice that phrase there. Not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. You know what that means? That means they were given the option to back up on their faith and to denounce their faith, but they did not choose that option. Let me give you an Old Testament example of this, because the author of Hebrews is talking to the Jews about Old Testament folks who were persecuted and tortured. So let me give you an Old Testament example of maybe who the author would have been talking about. Turn back to Second Chronicles chapter 18. That's in the Old Testament. You have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter number 18. And look with me at verse number 3. Here you have Ahab. He is the king of the ten northern tribes. And you have Jehoshaphat. He is the king of the two southern tribes. So he's the king of Judah. And Ahab is the king of of Israel. And they're going to come together in order to fight a battle against Israel. Syria, I believe it is. Look with me at verse number 3 here. and We see the two kings have come together, and Jehoshaphat has come up to where Ahab is, uh, probably in Samaria. Look at verse 3. And Ahab, king of Israel, uh, said unto Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Wilt thou go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? And he answered him, I am as thou art, and my people are as thy people, and we will be with thee in the war. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Run to Ahab, inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Therefore the king of Israel gathered together of prophets four hundred men, and said unto them, Shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for God will deliver it uh, uh, into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides 
that we might inquire of him? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. Look here. But I hate him. For he never prophesied good unto me, but always evil. The same is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Are you getting the picture here? Jehoshaphat and Ahab have come together. And they're going to join a pact and go and fight against Ramoth Gilead, which is a city in Syria. And Jehoshaphat is the more godly of the two. And he says to Ahab, shouldn't we inquire of the Lord? And so Ahab goes and he gets 400 prophets to come and prophesy. And all 400 men come up and say, go ahead and fight. You're going to win the battle. Go ahead and fight. You're going to win the battle. And all 400 men, like a pep rally, get up there and, ha, yes, you're going to win. In fact, we're not going to read the verses here, but in this passage, one guy puts a spike on his head and gives a visual display of what he believes they're going to do to the enemy. And Jehoshaphat looks at this fraud and this sham show, and he says, come on, Ahab, can't you bring one real prophet in here? These guys are just a bunch of yes men. They're not going to tell you the truth. And Ahab says, well, there is one real prophet, but I hate him because he always prophesies against me. And so Jehoshaphat says, come on, man, don't, don't say that. Just get him in here. Bring him in here. Look down to verse number 12, verse number 12 of the passage. And the messenger that went to call Micaiah spake to him, saying, Behold, the words of the prophets, uh, prophets declare good to the king with one assent. Let thy word, therefore, I pray thee, be like one of their others, and speak thou good. So you see in this here, the messenger goes to get Micaiah and bring him to the kings. And in their route back, this messenger tells him, look, 400 other prophets have already prophesied and said good. So, look, Micaiah, don't tip the apple cart. Go with the flow. Just tell the kings what they want to hear. All right? And Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, verse 13, even what my God saith, that will I speak. And when he was come to the king, the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And, and notice the sarcasm here in Micaiah's voice. And, and we don't know it's sarcasm except for the verses that follow. Look at the sarcasm here. And he said, go ye up and prosper, and they shall be delivered into your hand. And the king said to him, How many times shall I adjure thee that thou say nothing but the truth to me in the name of the Lord? And then he said, I did see all Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let them return, therefore, every man to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell thee that he would not prophesy good unto me but evil? Micaiah comes into the presence of these kings. 400 prophets are pressured into going with the flow and calling evil good and good evil. Micaiah is a real prophet. He comes into the midst. He's told, hey man, just go with it. Hey man, just tell the kings what they want to hear. So sarcastically he does, and the king says, come on man, just tell me the truth. And he stands there and does the unpopular thing, and he takes a stand for what is right. He tells the king the truth. If you go to war, now we're not going to read all the verses here, 
You read on down, what he tells the king is, if you go to war, Ahab, you're going to die. You're going to die. What would taking a stand for what was right get him? Look down at verse 23. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenana, came near and smote Micaiah upon the cheek. He got punched in the face and said, Which way went the Spirit of the Lord from me to speak unto thee? And Micaiah said, Behold, thou shalt see on that day, when thou shalt go into an inner chamber to hide thyself. Then the king of Israel said, This is Ahab, Take ye Micaiah and carry him back to Ammon the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus saith the king, Put this fellow in the prison, and feed him with bread of affliction, and with water of affliction, until I return in peace. And Micaiah, as he's being walked away, said, If thou certainly return in peace, then hath not the Lord spoken by me. And he said, Hearken all ye people. He said, King, if you go to war, you're going to die. The king said, put him in prison and give him the bread of affliction. Give him water of affliction. That means give him moldy bread and dirty water. Make sure he suffers in prison. When I get back from war, I'll deal with him. Micaiah says, if you come back from war, then I'm a false prophet. I'm not really who I, who I, who I, who I am. I'm not really who I claim to be. Christian... Sometimes taking a stand is not popular. But taking a stand is always right. During China's Boxer Rebellion of 1900, insurgents captured a mission station, blocked all the gates but one, and in front of that one gate, they placed a cross flat on the ground. Then the word was passed to those inside that any who trampled the cross underfoot would be permitted their freedom in life. But, uh, but that any refusing to trample the cross underfoot would be shot on sight. Terribly frightened, the first seven students trampled the cross underfoot and they were allowed to go free. But the eighth student was a little girl. She refused to commit the sacrilegious act. Instead, she walked up to that cross. She got down on her knees. She folded her little fingers together and she prayed that God would give her the strength to take a stand for her Christ. This little lady tiptoed around the edges of the cross and the next 92 students would follow her lead. All 93 of them were lined up against the wall and killed in cold blood. They took a stand for what was right. Christian, are you willing to take a stand even if it costs you your life? I heard one preacher say, how many of you are willing to die for Christ? I went to a youth camp one time and the pastor preached a powerful sermon. And at the end, he said, he said, I want everyone who would be willing to die for Christ 
to stand up. And boy, 90 to 95% of that room stood up. There were tears running down cheeks and there was very emotional spirit in the room. And then that preacher said, no one is asking you to die for Christ, but I am asking you to go forth and live for Christ. You want to live for Christ, take a stand for Him. A faith that stands. Letter B, notice, a faith that suffers. Look back at verse number 35 of Hebrews chapter 11. Notice the suffering that these men and women of faith endured. Women received their dead, raised to life again, verse 35 says, and others were tortured. Tortured. Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn or asunder or sawed in half. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and Goat skins. What, what does that mean? That means they were stripped naked. They had no clothes. They had to create clothes out of goat skins and animal skins, sheep skins. And then in this, in this being uh, isolated and, 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 and put out uh, uh, alone, it says being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and in mountains, and in dens, and caves of the earth. When it talks about Old Testament stalwarts that were stoned, one of those Old Testament heroes was Zechariah. Listen to what Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20 and 21 says about Zechariah. The Bible says, And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord that ye cannot prosper? Notice he's taking a stand uh, in the face of adversity. He's taking a stand for what's right. He's, the Bible says, Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. Uh, uh, so, uh, Zechariah takes a stand for what's right, and what happens to him? He's stoned to death. Boy, he, he took a stand by faith, and did God step in and stop him from dying? No. No. God allowed him to die in his faith. Israeli history tells us that King Manasseh had the prophet Isaiah cut in half with a saw. Can you imagine? Being stretched out and have two men on a long saw slice you in half, and that's how you die? During the years of the martyrs, uh, Christians fled into the underground caverns outside Rome in almost 600 miles of mole-like tunnels. Listen to this. Ten generations of Christians were buried in the catacombs during approximately 300 years of suppression. No one knows the exact number, but archaeologists estimate between 1,750,000 and 4 million Christians were interred or buried in the dark tunnels. 
Inscriptions of Scripture can still be seen on the catacomb walls. One of the most frequent inscriptions is the sign of the fish. But the inscription which best describes their faith says this, The Word of God is not bound. We are talking about a faith that is willing to suffer. We are talking about believers who pick up their cross and are willing to suffer for Christ. I'm going to read to you a really lengthy illustration. I believe the illustration will keep your attention. It says this, In the days of the Roman Emperor Nero, there lived and served him a band of soldiers known as the Emperor's Wrestlers. Fine, stalwart men, special forces type men they were picked from the best and the bravest of the land, recruited from the great athletes of the Roman amphitheater. In the great amphitheater, they upheld the arms of the emperor against all challengers. Before each contest, they stood before the emperor's throne. Then through the courts of Rome rang the cry, We the wrestlers wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. When the great Roman army was sent to fight in faraway uh, Gaul, no soldiers were braver no or more loyal than this band of wrestlers uh, led by their centurion uh, uh, Vespasian. But news reached Nero that many Roman soldiers had accepted the Christian faith. Therefore, this decree was dispatched to the centurion Vespasian. It read this, If there be any among your soldiers who cling to the faith of the Christian, they must die. The decree was received in the dead of winter. The soldiers were camped on the shore of a frozen inland lake. It was with sinking heart that Vespasian, the centurion, read the emperor's message. Vespasian called the soldiers together and asked the question, Are there any among you who cling to the faith of the Christian? If so, let him step forward. Forty wrestlers instantly stepped forward two paces, respectfully saluted, and stood at attention. Vespasian paused. He had not expected so many, nor such select ones. Until sundown, I shall await your answer, said Vespasian. Sundown came. Again, the question was asked. Again, the forty wrestlers stepped forward. Vespasian pleaded with them long and earnestly, without prevailing until a single man to deny his Lord. Upon a single man to deny his Lord. Finally, he said, the decree of the emperor must be obeyed. But I am not willing that your comrades should shed your blood. I am going to order that you march upon the lake of ice, and I shall leave you there to the mercy of the elements." The forty wrestlers were stripped down naked and then, falling into columns of four, marched toward the center of the lake of the ice. As they marched, they broke into the chant of the arena. Forty wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. Through the long hours of the night, Vespasian stood by his campfire and watched. And as he waited through the long night, there came to him fainter and fainter the wrestler's song. 
As morning drew near, one figure, overcome by exposure, crept quietly toward the fire. In the extremity of his suffering, he had renounced the Lord. Faintly but clearly from the darkness came the song. Thirty-nine wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Vespasian looked at the figure, drawing close to the fire. Perhaps he saw eternal light shining there toward the center of the lake. Who can say? But off came his helmet and clothing. And he sprang upon the ice, saying, Forty wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Vespasian joined those thirty-nine men. and Together they died on that ice, suffering. For the Savior. The call of the Christian. Letter A, a faith that stands. A faith that suffers. Notice letter C, a faith that shines. A faith that shines. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 39. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 39. The Bible says, And these all, notice here, having obtained a good report... Through what? You looking at it there? Through what? What gave them their good report? It was their faith. Received not the promise. We'll look at that phrase, received not the promise here in a moment. These all having obtained a good report. You know, um, if I could just take a minute and, um, and speak directly to each of you in the room. Can I tell you why I believe it is? that many of us are afraid to take a stand for what we believe? I believe that one of the main reasons is that we're afraid of our reputation being smeared, our name being tarnished by our co-workers, our neighbors, our family, our friends. Well, I don't want to be viewed as a radical. I don't want to be viewed as a heretic or a nut. Do you know what we learn from the Old Testament folks and really even now the New Testament folks who were willing to have their name smeared, their reputation tarnished? You know what we learn? We learn that history treats them really well. We learn that with time, they have obtained a good report. When a Christian takes a stand, oftentimes that stand will lead to suffering. When a Christian suffers, it causes that Christian to shine bright in the dark world. Another illustration here. Pliny, Roman governor in Asia Minor in the early 2nd century, was so puzzled about the Christians brought before him for trial that he wrote his famous letters to the emperor Trajan asking for his advice. This was the kind of thing he found himself up against. Listen. A certain unknown Christian was brought before him, and Pliny, finding little fault in him, proceeded to threaten him. I will banish thee, he said. Thou canst not, was the reply, for all the world is my father's house. Then I will slay thee, said the governor. Thou canst not, answered the Christian, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away thy possessions, continued Pliny. Thou canst not, for my treasure is in heaven. 
I will drive thee away from man, and thou shalt have no friend left, was the final threat. And the calm reply once more said, Thou canst not, for I have an unseen friend from whom thou art not able to separate me. What was a poor, harassed Roman governor with all the powers of life and death, torture and the stake and the stake at his disposal to do with people like this. Oh, I hope that one day that if I take a stand and it leads to me having to suffer, that I don't run from the suffering. And oh, I hope that I will endure the suffering and I will shine bright for the Lord Jesus Christ. The calling of the Christian. We looked at number one, the condition of the world. Let's notice number three, and lastly, the catalyst of the Christian. The catalyst of the Christian. And for our younger crowd in here, catalyst means that which get that which gets you going, right? That's like turning the car on, all right? That's like something that motivates you. The motivation of the Christian, all right? And uh, some of the adults needed that explanation too, amen? The catalyst of the Christian, letter A, notice our heritage. Our heritage. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 38. This is really the phrase in the passage that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up the most. Look here. Of whom the world was not worthy. Take a minute think about that. Of whom the world was not worthy. Why were these men banished? Why were these women tortured? Why were these folks put in jail? Because the world said, your radical beliefs make you unworthy to live around us. We don't want you around. You think an independent fundamental pastor would have any chance winning any political position in this world? In America? Listen, they would get hold of my YouTube uh, preaching clips and they would demonize me. Oh, did you know what he said about abortion? Oh, do you know the radical things he said about women in marriage? Oh, do you know the he holds to the antiquated views of the Bible? He can't be a leader. Boy, but as this world, as this country gets uh, further and further away from God, as this gospel light grows dimmer and dimmer, and as we become more and more of a secular nation... Boy, you know what they're going to do to people like me and you? They're going to say, you're not worthy to live amongst us. And you know what God says? God says, no, it isn't that you weren't worthy to live amongst them. They weren't worthy to live amongst you. The truth is that the world, as it stands right now, does not deserve to have the light of Christ shining bright. But in a time where the world is dark... This is the time where the world needs unworthy men and women to stand up and shine bright. Are you willing to take a stand for what's right? Are you willing to be that unworthy man or unworthy woman? It isn't that you're unworthy. It's that the world's unworthy for us. The Bible says the world was not worthy. They label us as not being worthy. The world was not worthy of these great men and women. Look here, because the world was not worthy, what did the world do to them? They ostracized them. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Look at verse 39. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. I am blown away by this. We have a rich heritage of those who have suffered before us. Their faith was in a promise 
that was cloudy at best. I, I see Christians who have the completed Bible and know the story of Jesus and don't have a faith strong enough to stand up for what they believe. Can you imagine how much harder it was in the Old Testament? They didn't know who Jesus, they didn't know the name Jesus. They, they just had this idea of a coming Messiah that they kept waiting for. Thousands and thousands of years, they're waiting for this idea of a Messiah. And their faith and this concept, this cloudy concept at best, was so strong, they were willing to be isolated away into a mountain and wearing animal clothing and deserted and left to die. Oh, how rich our heritage. They did not receive the promise in their lifetime. Jesus was not born in these folks' lifetime, yet they never lost their faith, our heritage. Boy, if you ever start to feel despondent or discouraged about why I have to be persecuted and suffer, we look back behind us and we see believers from thousands of years ago that suffered, and what a rich heritage we have. Letter B, notice our hero. Our hero. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40. The first part of the verse says there, God having provided some better thing for us. Well, what is that better thing? Think about these folks who are wandering about in caves and mountains and deserts. Think about these people that are being stoned and cut in half with the salt. Think about these people that are being uh, uh, tried by uh, uh, cruel mockings and tortured and, and, and burned at the stake. What was the, what was the hope that was uh, available, rather, uh, what was available to them? What was available to them was heaven, purchased through the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our hero. Jesus Christ ties together the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. Lastly, let our see, notice, our hope. Our hope. Look at verse 40. The Bible says, God having provided some better thing for us, that they, speaking of the Old Testament saints, without us, should not be made perfect. I'm almost done. Please stay engaged with me just another minute or two here. What do we, the church, what do we, the church, represent to those who lived and died prior to the coming of the Messiah? We represent the promise being fulfilled. Right? We represent that Jesus did come. He did die. He did raise from the dead. He did start the church. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still going. Without us, without us, their faith would have been a waste of time and energy. The Old Testament and New Testament saints are brought together by what? We're brought together. This is, this is it. This is it here. The Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are brought together, watch this, by the suffering Savior. He took a stand for what was right. He suffered because He took a stand. And His light, the light of the cross, shines bright both backwards into history and forward into history. Forward into, into the future, into where we are today. The Old Testament saints suffered for their faith. Christ suffered for our faith. Christian, are you willing to suffer for your faith? Are you willing to suffer? Now again, I'm not saying we need to run out and, 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 and look 
uh, to be persecuted. I'm not saying run to New York City's gay parades and, and call somebody a homophobic slur and then claim to be persecuted. Oh, I'm not saying that. But as you continue to stand for what you believe, you will be more and more and more hated by this world. As they grow further and further away from God, and you hold to the constant of Scripture, you will suffer. Are you willing to do it? The Old Testament saints suffered. Christ suffered. And the day is coming soon where the American church will be called to suffer. I finish with this. In the Middle East, there are Christians suffering right now. Did you know that Christians are being persecuted? I mean heads getting chopped off. I mean little Christian girls are being taken and turned into sex slaves. Right now, today. We seem to think that because we live in America, we're, 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 we're insulated from that. Oh, my friend, there's going to come a day if the church doesn't wake up where we suffer as well. And you know what? That's okay. Because it will purify the church. And it will purify my faith. And it will purify your faith. We're ready to do that. Are we ready for that? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Lord, thank you for all of the amazing stories in Hebrews 11. The stopping of the mouth of lions, the quenching of a fiery furnace, the Red Sea being parted, children being raised back to life, Great battles being won. Lord, sometimes that's what faith accomplishes. But Lord, Lord, sometimes faith gets us through suffering that you choose for us to endure. Lord, help all of us to begin to prepare our hearts and minds for a day where we'll be called to take our stand for you. And may we not faint in that day of adversity. Lord, I pray that America would get real. American Christians would get real about their faith. Lord, help us not to wait until we have to suffer before we are sincerely in love with you. Lord, if the church would wake up, I think we could probably forego the suffering and the persecution. And so, Lord, help that to begin right here in this church with these people. Light a fire under us. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh God, we love you. Lord, how we want to love you more. Thank you for the Old Testament saints who suffered. Thank you that you suffered. Lord, help us to be willing to do the same. Lord, be with us this evening as we leave. May you intensify our faith. May you help us to be more in love with you. In Jesus' name.